Welcome to the Doxology and Theology Podcast, presented by the Institute for Biblical Worship at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. That's right, I said the Doxology and Theology Podcast, a podcast for worship leaders who know that the gospel is so good it has to be sung. I'm your host, Matthew Westerholm, Associate Professor of Church Music and Worship at Southern Seminary and the Executive Director of the Institute for Biblical Worship. On today's episode, we are dipping into our worship resources to bring you a plenary message by Dr. Kevin DeYoung. Kevin DeYoung is senior pastor at Christ Covenant Church. He's the chairman for the Gospel Coalition and an assistant professor of systematic theology at RTS Charlotte. He's authored several books, including Just Do Something, The Hole in Our Holiness, Crazy Busy, and many more. In this plenary message taken from our 2021 Doxology and Theology Conference, Dr. DeYoung talks about worship and God the Spirit. It's good to be with you today. I wish we could be together in person, but it's always a privilege to be speaking God's word to God's people, even if it's through these means. My topic is the Holy Spirit and worship. Let me put some statements together that may seem opposite each other, but they're not. True worship is not possible apart from the Holy Spirit, and yet... The heartfelt Christian on Sunday may not always be aware that he or she is worshiping in the Spirit. See that? True worship cannot be separated from the Spirit. And yet, as you worship, you may not discern yourself to be in the Spirit. In the corporate gathering, we worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our triune God, and yet... The focus of our gathering is not to gaze upon the Spirit, but to bow before the Son to the glory of God the Father. So we gather to worship our triune God in that sense. We gather to worship the Holy Spirit. And yet, our conscious explicit focus is not normally upon the Spirit. And we'll hear in a bit that that's as it should be. Most Christians are desirous of spirit-led worship. We've heard it said before, maybe we've said ourselves, oh, wouldn't it be great to see the spirit show up? Or pastor, wow, the spirit really showed up this morning. And yet few Christians have been taught well what that might actually mean. We haven't been taught well hopefully as leaders and pastors, but even we sometimes haven't been taught well, let alone our people, about the person and the work of the Spirit in worship. And that's what we hope to remedy in some small measure today. We're going to look at this in two major sections, the person of the Holy Spirit, relatively briefly, and then the work of the Holy Spirit as it relates to worship. Now, worship is a category, no, for all of life, but thinking in particular for the the corporate gathering of God's people. I'm looking at John 16, and we'll reference verses 4 through 11 throughout this 
message. Here in chapter 16, we are in between the Lord's Supper and Judas' betrayal the next morning. And as I think Sinclair Ferguson points out in his book on the Holy Spirit, it's fascinating that you have Jesus right before he's going to be arrested, right before he's going to be killed, and he knows this is coming. What would you talk about with your disciples hours before your death? Well, Jesus decides to spend most of his time, according to John's gospel, talking about the Trinity, tells us something about the importance of Trinitarian theology and worship. Five times in this upper room discourse, verses 14, 15, and 16, Jesus promises the Holy Spirit. And here, chapter 16, 4 through 11, is the fourth of these five promises. He says, here I'm reading verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. If I go away, the helper will not come, probably translated in your Bible. It's the Greek word parakletos, the paraclete, interestingly. In John 14, 16, Jesus refers to the spirit as another paraclete. And 1 John 2 will refer to Jesus as the paraclete, and there it's usually translated as an advocate. So Jesus is a paraclete, an advocate, helper, comforter, and the Holy Spirit, who we usually think of with that title, he will send and he will be another helper. And Jesus says it's actually good that he would physically go away that the Spirit might come. On the other side of Pentecost, it means that Christ can be everywhere by his spirit. We can actually do better than walking with him. He can dwell in us. I forget who said it, otherwise I'd give due credit. But this line is very important. The Holy Spirit did not merely supply the Son's absence. He completed his presence. The Spirit did not merely Supply the son's absence, he completed his presence. This is why Jesus can say it's good that he would go away. We tend to think, well, I mean, the spirit's great and all, but wouldn't it be nice if we could walk arm in arm with Jesus? We could eat fish with him. We'd be right there. He'd see us. Oh, all of our problems would go away. We'd all believe in Jesus. Well, of course, they didn't when Jesus was right there and they crucified him. But if Jesus were still on earth... He's a God-man, human body. He's in one place at one time, localized. Now the Spirit comes and we can be with Christ wherever we are. He does not just supply the Son's absence. Okay, the Son's gone, the Spirit's here. He completes His presence. So do not think of the Holy Spirit as Jesus' understudy. You know, in a play, a musical, they have an understudy years ago. My wife and I were in London, and we went to see Les Mis, and they announced at the beginning of the show that in tonight's performance, the part of Fontaine will be played by her understudy, such and such, and, you know, there's sort of a audible little groan. Now, of course, you're there in London doing Les Mis. The understudy is amazing, too, but... You don't go to the play hoping to get the understudy. You want to get the, the main attraction. 
we should not think of the Holy Spirit as sort of, eh, Jesus, not quite, and I guess we'll have to do. That is to dishonor the Holy Spirit. Now we can have Christ wherever. We don't have to light a candle. We don't have to go to the mountains. We don't have to live in Israel. We have Christ in us, with us, by the Holy Spirit. It's important to remember the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. Of course, distinct from the Father and the Son. And yet Romans 8, 9 refers to him as both the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of the Father, the Spirit of the Son. Paul will use the phrase Christ in you. Sometimes the language of the Spirit of God in you. To speak of the Spirit being in you is the same as to speak of Christ being in you, which is the same as speaking of the Spirit of Christ being in you. And the point over and over here in the Upper Room Discourse is to underscore this connection between the Son and the Father and then the Spirit and the Son. We think about the Son's ministry. Of course, he was fully divine and many of his miracles attested to his divinity. He showed supernatural ability and insight that could come only from God. He received worship only as a God would. And yet, we may miss how often the Son's ministry is attended by, empowered, and made possible by the Spirit. Mary conceived by what? The power of the Holy Spirit. And then the Spirit rested on Jesus at his baptism. Then the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. And Luke's account says he was filled with the Holy Spirit. After the temptation by the devil... Jesus returned to Galilee, Luke 4, 14, in the power of the Spirit and announced in the synagogue that the Spirit of the Lord was upon him to proclaim good news. Matthew 12, it was the Spirit of God that Jesus, by the Spirit of God, he cast out demons. Hebrews 9, 14 says it was through the eternal Spirit that Christ offered himself as a sacrifice to God. 1 Peter 3, 18 says Jesus was made alive by the Spirit. Romans 1, 4 that through the spirit of holiness, Jesus was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. In other words, from conception to birth, through life, ministry, death, resurrection, we see the spirit at work upon, in, and through the son. And now, just as the spirit was at work through the son in his earthly ministry, now the son ascended in heaven is at work through his spirit. You may have seen before that Acts famously is the story of what Jesus continued to do in his ministry. The book of Luke is what Jesus did. And then part two, what he continued to do. Well, where is Jesus? He ascends into heaven in Acts chapter one. Yes, but by his word and spirit, he continues to do ministry on the earth. John 15, 26. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father... The spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. So the spirit is sent from the father, John 14, 26, sent from the son, John 16, 7, later John 20, 22. The father and the son then are one and they share in sending the spirit who is the spirit of God and the spirit of Christ, the only begotten son of the father. 
And incidentally, it's because of this shared language of the Father and the Son, both sending the Spirit, at least this is one of the reasons why in the Western church we have affirmed the filioque clause, Latin for and the Son, which was added to the, added to the Nicene Creed that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And famously, that was one of the really first schisms in the church is the Eastern church for a lot of different reasons we don't have to get into, some understandable uh, and some we disagree with, but felt uh, very nervous about adding that phrase. But here is some biblical warrant for it, that if we believe that the, the in time proceeding of the Spirit sent by the Father and the Son has some reflection in the eternal procession of the Godhead, then we are right to say that just as the Son is eternally begotten from the Father in the imminent trinity, as you can call it, uh, so in the economic trinity, the outworking of the trinity as we see it, the Spirit proceeding eternally from the Father and the Son in time is sent at Pentecost from both the Father and the Son. So there's, there's a, a reason, there's an exegetical warrant for it. We read in 2 Corinthians 3, 17 through 18, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Interestingly, you don't see this in the New Testament, except here, really. Uh, the Lord is the Spirit. Now, the Lord, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's the kurios, but here it says he is the Spirit. So is this some Trinitarian confusion? Well, the next phrase, the Lord is the Spirit, and then it says where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So there's a differentiation between the Lord and the Spirit of the Lord. So we, 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 we are Trinitarians, not Binitarians. But what does it mean then to say the Lord is the Spirit? Well, I think Paul's statement is not to identify them in terms of their being, that the Son and the Spirit have no distinction, but rather to identify them in terms of their shared redemptive activity. In other words, in the context of 2 Corinthians 3, when we turn to the Lord Jesus... It's evidence of the Spirit at work. And where the Spirit is truly at work, we turn to the Lord Jesus. The Lord is the Spirit. It's the Spirit of the Lord. If you think about it, Jesus is the truth, John 14, 6, and the Spirit will lead the disciples into all truth, John 16, 13. Jesus came to bear witness about God the Father, John 1, 14 through 18, and the Spirit comes to bear witness to Christ, John 15, 26. The world did not receive Christ, John 1.11, and the world will not receive the Spirit, John 14.17. There is a shared sense of redemptive activity in the world between the Son and the Spirit. You could put it like this. The image of the Father came to earth as a man to save us from our sins. And then, having accomplished that on the cross... Being raised to new life, the Son of the Father ascended into heaven so that the Son, together with the Father, could send the Spirit, that the Spirit would be the, the Son's very power and personal presence on the earth. 
All of this is to underline that the Holy Spirit, we must always remember, is the Spirit of Christ, not merely supplying his absence, but completing his presence. So as we consider that, that the person of the Spirit is the Spirit of Christ, what do we need to reflect upon regarding his work, this Spirit of Christ? What is his work in particular as it relates to worship? Let me give you four words. The Spirit convicts and converts. The Spirit applies and glorifies. There's more that we could say, but let's limit ourselves to those four words as we look at the Holy Spirit and worship. The person of the Spirit who is the Spirit of Christ in the work of our corporate gatherings. First then, the Holy Spirit convicts. So going back to the passage in John chapter 16, we read, picking up in verse 8, and when he comes, the helper, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. The word for convict, elegco, is used in John 3.20, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. That's the same Greek word. Think of the Holy Spirit's work of conviction as a spotlight. Now, as much as my wife hates for me to remind her of this, but as it's spring and it's getting warmer and soon it will be summer in North Carolina, and I don't know about wherever you are from, but here in North Carolina, in the summer it means lots of uh, cucaracha, cockroaches, and they're big and they're ugly, and you flip a light on and you have all sorts of ones you didn't even know were there, and they scurry about. That's what the light does. It exposes the darkness of the cockroach. Well, the Holy Spirit is that convicting light, the dark places in the human heart that we could not see. The Holy Spirit shines a spotlight, bringing us to repentance. Jesus here lists three things. The Spirit will convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin, he says, because they do not believe in God. At the heart of sin is unbelief. We think, well, they just didn't believe in him. No, that's a mistake, but no, it, it's sin. Think of it this way. Think of if, if your wife and your husband is lost at sea or he's lost in battle and some many, many years later he comes back and... He says, it's me, but you don't recognize him. You don't believe him. You don't trust him, and you mock him. You don't listen to him. You kick him out. You uh, go off with other men. Now, on one level, you say, well, I, I simply didn't believe him. But do you see that tantamount in that unbelief is sin? It's a sin to have left him for others. It's a sin to not believe that he is the one he says he is. 
The Spirit convicts us of the sin of unbelief. The Spirit convicts us then of righteousness. Jesus says, curiously, because I go to the Father. So what's the connection between righteousness and his ascension? I think the point is, the world on its own is not impressed with Jesus. Now, they may, be, they may say they like Jesus, and he's a good man, and he teaches us things, and he has wonderful ethics, but not impressed enough to worship him, not impressed enough to recognize his oneness with the Father. But as Jesus goes to the Father, that is meant to show to the world, aha, he, he was who he says he, he was, and he went and returned to heaven, so he was the heavenly sent Son. And the Spirit then convicts us of righteousness, His righteousness and our unrighteousness in not recognizing who He really is. And then the Spirit convicts of judgment. You think about it, the world killed the wrong man and worships the wrong ruler. They murdered the Son of God and they followed the evil one. And so we have... This reference in verse 11, the ruler of this world is judged. That's what the Spirit is meant to show us. Don't follow the wrong king. Now, the blow dealt to Satan on the cross was a precursor to a final defeat. He is the proverbial dog on a, on a leash. He can bark. If you let him, he can bite. But ultimately... He's chained. Ultimately, his doom is secured. What we pray for then is for the spirit in worship to convict. You think of even those confusing passages about spiritual gifts. One of the reasons God gave those gifts is that the unbeliever might have his sins exposed. And he would say, I need God. He would see who he really is. I remember Mark Dever saying to me one time that the singular thing he prays for in evangelism, and I think he was talking about personal evangelism, but I'm sure it's true for corporate evangelistic preaching. The singular thing he prays for is that the Spirit would convict people of sin. And isn't that true? Isn't that a good a good word. If the grand theme of Scripture is God's work to save sinners, then that good news is going to fall on deaf ears until people believe that they are actually sinners in need of a Savior. You know this to be true. We give people the bridge diagram. Here's humans. Here's God. We need the cross as the bridge that brings us both together. Well, that cross, that bridge is not good news if there's no abyss. There's no gulf between human rebellion and divine holiness. Until the Spirit opens our eyes and opens the eyes of the people in your church, in your communities, to really see their sin, they we're just sort of tidying up people's morals. We're helping them fill out a religious tradition until they are truly exposed in their sinfulness then the work of salvation will not happen. So that's the first part. The Holy Spirit convicts and the Holy Spirit converts. Here I'm using the word con convert really interchangeably with regenerates, causes to be born again. Jesus tells Nicodemus famously in John chapter 3, 
We must be born again of water and spirit. Nicodemus should have understood his Old Testament better. He was a teacher in the passage from Ezekiel 36. Now, we won't take time to go there. But if you look in Ezekiel 36, I think we see clearly that water means cleansing and spirit means a, a new spirit, a new heart. You must be born again of water and spirit. You must be cleansed and renewed. You must be made pure and you must be made again. That's what Jesus is talking about in John 3. This supernatural working that cleanses the old man and makes him new. Titus 3.5 calls it the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So just like the wind, in Greek, pneuma, blows where it wishes, Jesus says, so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Also the word pneuma. God, the Holy Spirit, must invade your heart, awaken you to the vileness of your sin, the truthfulness of God's word, the preciousness of Christ. This is the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. That is a hard place to stop, but if you'd like to hear more, go to our website, biblicalworship.com. Click podcast. We're happy to share with you the entire thing for free. While you're at our website, you can find information concerning other worship resources from the Institute for Biblical Worship and the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. That's biblicalworship.com. That's what we have for you this time on the Doxology and Theology podcast. Our show is produced by the lanky Evan Jarms, engineered by Caleb Sherwood, and the music is by our good friend Joel Nagus. Until next time, this is Dr. Matthew Westerholm reminding you that the gospel is so good, it has to be sung. Peace be with you.